A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a bandit. In six months, we never met anyone who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. So why steal them? Well, because he thought it was good sport. Because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. What's it all about? My Aquatic Jerk. My Aquatic Jerk. I'll show you the life of the mind! My Aquatic Jerk. Recently, I got an email with local news. These three pieces were right in a row. Homeless man set on fire while sleeping on the beach. Child's body discovered in freezer. KKK flyers left on driveways on Martin Luther King Day. Even a bleeding heart like me, deep into working on a bleeding heart show like this, my first reaction reading those headlines was pure anger. What evil fucking monsters. If I stop to think about it, I believe the people who did those things are broken and in pain. I believe if we could understand them fully, everything they did would make sense. When we say a kind word or a harsh one, when we help another person or kick them, whether Jonas Salk or Jack the Ripper, you're a human being acting how everything in your life and body set you up to act. People don't want to think like that. It feels dangerous to let go of indignation. We feel our morality is what keeps chaos at bay, what raises us above all the other creatures who only act from instinct and impulse. But maybe our indignation is also an instinct. And let's not overlook that indignation feels pretty good. Not completely good because it tears you up a bit, but by definition, it embodies a feeling of superiority. You feel on top, and you don't have to be Sun Tzu to know that above your enemy, is the safest place to be. Well, there's two ways to do that, elevating ourselves and lowering them. When someone hurts you, you make them a villain. Nations and lovers do it, crime victims do it. When a tiger escapes the zoo and kills someone, we don't think, I hate that effing tiger, I wanna strangle that tiger. We think of it as a freak accident, an act of nature. But isn't everything any living thing does an act of nature. I'm Daniel Kaufman. Welcome to the Myoclonic Jerk Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about evil. How should we think about the people who do horrible things? How should we deal with our feelings about them? And how should we deal with them? We'll start off with Durf Backdurf, who went to high school with future serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Then, a scene in a bar in 1994 
where a forensic psychologist and a cop get into an argument that lays out all the issues we'll be digging into. We'll hear from Adrian Rain, an expert on the biological causes of violence, and Rick Nevin, who explains an environmental cause that might surprise you. We'll talk revenge with Bill Miller, forgiveness with Fred Luskin, a little comedy from Maria Bamford, a talking snake, and much more. My name is Beverly Platt, and Nancy Fox is my sister. I cannot begin to explain to you what losing Nancy has meant to me and my family. I lost a friend, a confidant. My children will never have an aunt, and I'll never have another sister. Nancy's death is like a deep wound that will never, ever heal. As far as I'm concerned, Dennis Rader does not deserve to live. I want him to suffer as much as he made his victims suffer. This man needs to be thrown in a deep, dark hole and left to rot. He should never, ever see the light of day. And on the day he dies, Nancy and all of his victims will be waiting with God and watching him as he burns in hell. I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans Jeffrey Dahmer killed 17 young men and boys and then did unspeakable things to their corpses, including necrophilia, cannibalism, butchery, on and on. There was really nothing this guy didn't do. It's a hard the man talking is cartoonist Durf Backdurf, and he went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer and did a graphic novel about it called My Friend Dahmer. What went through your head when you first heard the news about this former friend? Oh, geez. I had to try to process what this guy did. You know, the story came out in pieces, mm -hmm. and each revelation was more shocking and troubling than the next. Quite a few sleepless nights. And then on top of that, I had to deal with a media feeding frenzy. I was amazed at how quickly they zeroed in on his few friends. There were three camera trucks parked in front of my house. Oh, wow. It was a tough time. I just remember kind of stumbling around in a daze. So you come to terms with it. It's not easy, but you just kind of shove it aside and get on with your life. In the book, there's a scene where your wife calls you and she asks you if you'd guess who it was. And your first guess is this guy, Lloyd Figg, who you talk about in the book. He's loud and aggressive, and he's maybe more obviously disturbed than Jeff, who was more of the quiet mm -hmm. type. Yeah, I mean, that was Jeff's talent. You know, even when putting on the most ridiculous public displays, he managed to stay below the radar of everyone. It's kind of chilling to think he was developing that skill at a young age. Someone could look at the surface details of Dahmer's story and just say, well, he grew up in this clean Midwestern suburb. It would seem surprising until we get the details that you give. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason for Dahmer to become Dahmer environmentally. I mean, his parents had a lousy marriage, but how many millions of kids come from broken homes and they don't go out and kill 17 people? Right. I don't pretend to have any answers. In the book, I just document what I saw and what I knew. Mm-hmm. There was this running shtick of Dahmer's. It seemed like he's sort of mocking the voice and mannerisms of someone with cerebral palsy. 
Right. And you and all your friends found it very funny. And I think this kind of cruel humor is very common to kids because we haven't really developed our sense of empathy yet. No, no. I mean, you're talking about teenage boys here. Yeah, so sure. The baseline is set to idiot. <laughs> No, and I think that lack of empathy that's common to all kids might make it harder to spot a Dahmer who obviously has some empathy issues to be able to do what he did. This was a very different time. We're talking 35, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. There were not the kind of warning triggers that you have in a school setting now. You'd walk into a school and you'd either get punched in the mouth or be called a fag or yeah. that's just the way it was. It was a rougher time. It was just different. I mean, I don't know if it was any rougher or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot more school shootings now than there were then. So maybe we were kids were better off smacking yeah. each other in the mouth. It was just different. And I think Dahmer was a product of his time and his place, as we all are. I don't think he would have gotten away with the behavior that he got away with in 1978 now. I think that somebody would have noticed. I don't know that that would have stopped him. The likely default is they just throw him out of school. Are you talking about the drinking or the animal cruelty? or Bizarre behavior in school, but particularly the drinking. I think they would have probably sniffed that out pretty uh -huh. quick. It's interesting you bring up the mass shootings these days. Maybe a Dahmer would have gone that way too today. I don't think I... serial killers and mass shooters have the same wiring or the same motivations. What do you think the difference is? Dahmer was not driven by rage, like say an Adam Lanza or somebody like that. He was driven by this all-consuming, perverse sexuality. He actually was on record as saying he didn't want to hurt anybody. That's why he drugged everyone before he killed them, so they'd feel no pain. Oh, there's that scene in the book that's so powerful and surprising to me where he takes the dog out in the woods where he's going to cut it up like he's done with roadkill for a while, but this is the first time he's looking at an actual dog, and the dog just looks up at him and he can't do it. Right. He does have some compassion. Yeah. At that time before he had killed, I think there were still some vestiges of his humanity, though he was losing them very quickly. And to no one's surprise, there's really nothing there to admire once he starts. Of course. Well, well, you'd be surprised how many people out there are Dahmer fans who have constructed this whole bizarre urban legend around this guy. Really? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I run into them all the time. What's the legend? The legend is that he was picked on and shunned when he was young, and later in life he lashed back at the society that had done these things. Oh, okay. Which doesn't hold up. First of all, his victims were mostly young African-American gay men. Mm -hmm. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more oppressed group of people. Right. He's not like this trench coat mafia shooting bullies. Exactly. A lot of them tend to be 20-something women. You mean a lot of the fans? The fans, yeah. They see his soulful eyes. I hear that all the time. Jeez. His sadness. and They're just projecting all this stuff. Yeah. And I do get harsh criticism from them because my book kind of pops their bubble. Right. They're shooting the messenger, basically. Exactly. But, yeah, that's a pretty small minority. I mean, all of us, I think, are somewhat guilty of having some morbid fascination. Well, in Dahmer's case, there was nothing he didn't do. He seemed to just have no limits. And that's... I guess fascinating to some people. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about him being gay, there's another segment of the show about Gacy. And uh, I think both these guys, the fact that they are in the closet and scared about coming out, I think there might be something there. Well, being gay was pretty much the only normal part of his sexuality. <laughs> uh, yeah. But certainly the secrecy that he had to construct around himself. 
Right. I'm certainly not saying there's any correlation between gayness and serial killing, but just having to keep the secret and having shame about something that he shouldn't have had shame about, obviously. Being pushed underground is clearly damaging. Well, yeah, again, it was a very different time. This was only a year or two after Stonewall. Yeah. There were at least 20 kids in my class of 200 that eventually came out, and not a single one did in high school. I mean, it was just unthinkable. Right. And his dad said homosexuality is a crime against God. So it's easy to see why Jeff couldn't approach his dad with this information. And he really couldn't reveal his sexuality, the perverse part of it, without revealing also that he was gay. It was as if his life was constructed to just keep propelling him toward the edge of the abyss. Yeah, I feel like it's crazy for me to look at Dahmer and compare myself to him and feel superior because he's obviously got some broken wiring, some things in his upbringing that made him a different person than I am. And whatever he became is inevitable in a way. Well, maybe. I know you don't quite hold with that because you write in the appendix that Dahmer was a tragic figure, but that only applies until the moment he kills. Right. But I do feel like that runs counter to your narrative a little bit because you sort of show us how he had to become what he became in a way. But he made a choice to kill. I mean, whether it was inevitable or not. And he certainly made a choice to keep on killing. After he killed his first victim, what did he have to live for? You know, his life was a living hell. Mm -hmm. He could have walked down to the police station and turned himself in. When he finally got to prison, all he kept saying over and over again was that he wanted to die. He wanted to get the death penalty. He didn't even have the guts to throw himself off a bridge somewhere. We have this self-preservation instinct that might go along with all those... With Dahmer, it was strong to the point of being pathological. I mean, he erased that first kid. Even after he butchered the corpse, he went to such lengths to destroy the skeleton. He even crushed the teeth. Wow. I mean, he turned him to dust. When the cops finally did move into the crime scene, all they found of his first victim were 100 bone fragments. The biggest was half an inch long. That was all that's left of a 170-pound body. But my book is not really about Dahmer the serial killer. My book is the story before that story. Right. And when he was young, before he had committed any crime, he was almost heroic. He was battling against this incredible mental illness completely on his own. He had nowhere to turn. And he held on for as long as he could, and ultimately I took him over. You know, I've asked them to hang me. There's no capital punishment in Ireland, Freddie, as you well know. Why do you want them to hang you? Because that's the way Leslie Ryan died. You're saying you feel remorse? I'm not a monster. Do I look like a monster? What do monsters look like? Man, the cops in here the other day. Wanting to go over all the gory details. Which I'm sure you were only too happy to provide. They're obsessed with cannibalism. What did it taste like? I told him it tasted like pheasant. A bit gamey. Good for you. Make a joke about it. Why were they... It's the same as always. They want to know where the last one is. Why can't you tell them, Freddy? Give the family some kind of peace. I wanted to, Father, but for the life of me, I cannot remember where I put it. I mean, I know it was in the woods somewhere. Where did I leave my keys? No, I wasn't in my right mind. The LSD was like a yeah, you know, fairy tale. You said all that at the trial, Freddy. Getting kind of tiresome now. She was a lovely girl. You know, she told me that she'd been abused before. So I says, well, once more won't make any difference then. 
you see the light go out in their eyes and you become God. No, you don't. No, you don't. Why am I here? Just wanted someone to talk to. I don't think you feel any guilt whatsoever about anything that you've done. No, I do, Father. I believe what the Bible teaches. I believe that if I repent my sins, that I'll be forgiven, and I'll be able to go up to heaven, and I'll see those girls, and I'll tell them how sorry I am. And I'll hug them, and I'll kiss them, and I'll love them with a real, true love, and I'll have no desire to hurt them in any way. God made me. I mean, didn't he? So he understands me. He must do. Don't you think? Hey, officer. Hey, doc. Buy a drink? Are you allowed to buy a cop a drink? Hey, you're not in treatment with me, so I don't see a problem. <laughs> All right, then. Yeah, sure. Tommy, turn the TV a second. killer John Wayne Gacy is to be executed at midnight by lethal injection. Gacy was convicted 14 years ago for molesting and murdering 33 young boys. As you can see behind me, a large crowd has gathered to celebrate. Nearby, a much smaller group is holding a candlelight vigil. Candlelight vigil? Christ. It's about time they took care of that sick bastard. Tell me you're not against the death penalty. Well, I am. Even with someone so evil? I guess I don't believe in evil. What? If killing 33 kids isn't evil, what is? Look, what he did was horrible, but to call him evil says he could have helped it. You don't think he could have? Hey, even you started off by calling him sick. Don't you care why Gacy did what he did? I care that he did it. I care that he lured teenage boys to his house and then raped and strangled them. I care about that too. So what's wrong with you? You have a kid, right? I do. And if it were my kid, I'd want to kill Gacy myself. But I don't believe we should act on every feeling we have. Isn't that what you'd say to Gacy? Well, if a victim's parent acted on that one, I'd understand. Yeah, that anger, and believe me, I feel it too, goes a long way to explaining why we hold on to the idea of evil. If you think of somebody as just sick, you got no place to put it. I don't feel like I have to justify my anger where Gacy is concerned. But what sane person would do what he did? But if that's true, then all killers are sick. Yes. No, I'm not going to see every mass murderer get off. You adopted one of those puppies from the canine unit, right? Yeah. When he misbehaves, would you call it evil? Seems strong for barking at the doorbell. Uh, what if he mauled a child? I'd wonder what the breeder did to him. I see where you're going with this, but people are different than dogs. Yeah, how? We can communicate, we can learn rules. Yeah, you communicate with your dog, he can learn rules. When he messes up, do you beat him? No. But if he mauled a child, he'd have to be put down. But not because he's evil. We have to protect the rest of us. That means putting the worst down and locking up the others. Who then return to the streets worse than ever. 
Rehabilitating criminals serves all of us. Doc, we've tried rehabilitation a hundred different ways. Yeah, we've had mixed results so far. That's why we gotta figure out what makes people go bad. Well, while you're figuring, bodies are piling up. Some people are just no good. Let me ask you something. What makes you better than Gacy? <laughs> oh, I don't know. How about, just as an example, that I never raped and killed 33 boys? <laughs> Did you ever have the desire to? No. So isn't it unfair for you to sit there and claim moral superiority over those who have different drives than you? I mean, it's easy for us to say don't kill. We don't have the inclination. It's like bragging you don't eat garbage. Just because someone wants to do something doesn't mean that he can't help it. Lots of people maybe want to steal a TV, but they don't. So you wouldn't steal a TV? No. How do you think you got to be that kind of person? I don't know. I guess I was brought up right. Do you think Casey was? I don't know. You know he wasn't. You know the history. Fine. Well, if he doesn't have what you have, how do you expect him to do as you do? In you, goodness is stronger. In Gacy, aggression was. Our actions are always determined by our strongest motives. And those we don't choose. Who chooses them, if not us? Nobody. We don't choose our genetic makeup or what the world throws at us. Gacy was severely abused as a child. He was molested. Nobody does anything without reasons. His reason is that he's evil. What does that mean? I don't know. People shouldn't torture and kill each other. When they do, it's evil. Imagine a person gets a head injury and loses a part of his brain that allows him to consider his impulses. So he can't help but act them out. And he goes out and murders a dozen people. Would you call him evil? Well... What if he was abused as a baby and lost control of his impulses through psychological damage? But how can you ever prove that? There are plenty of studies showing the effects of abuse. And it just makes sense. Don't you think Gacy would have done better if he could have? Don't you think he'd have preferred a normal life to what he had? Maybe he thought he could get away with it. Look, if I flick this pretzel, it moves. It doesn't move unless something moves it. And it's the same with people. Nothing we do is not caused. That makes us too passive. We're more than pretzels. We can think. Yeah, and our thoughts are caused too. We're matter, and all matter is subject to the laws of nature. It sounds so mechanical. Think back to when you hit puberty. You had no say in it. Your chemistry changed, and you found yourself with a new interest in boys. (laughs) No. Your chemistry didn't change. No, it wasn't boys for me. (laughs) Oh, jeez. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have presumed. That's okay. For the lady cops, most people assume the opposite. In any event, your hormones changed, which led your desires to change. You had no say in it. But I had some say in how I dealt with it. And how did you? Kept it to myself. So you had motives stronger than your sexual urges. I'm guessing fear of disapproval. Sure. But I overcame that, eventually. Well, you must have found some support. A hundred years ago, you might not have. So it's all nature or nurture? We never make choices? Sure we do, all the time. It's just inevitable what they're going to be. Hey, can we talk without you throwing pretzels at me? You think that was inevitable? (laughs) Of course. I'm taking a position you don't want to accept. So you try to do something not inevitable. But unexpected is not not inevitable. Well, if everything is predestined, why should I do anything? Why should we argue? 
what will be will be. Ah, but the arguing is also determined. And so what? Isn't it kind of fun anyway? All our struggles have outcomes. Doesn't mean we shouldn't struggle. Oh, uh, I don't know. This is just all... I just feel like Gacy has to take responsibility. He hid the bodies. He knew it was wrong. Well, there can be a big gulf between knowing something's wrong and being able to stop yourself from doing it. Wait, hold up. Shortly after midnight, John Wayne Gacy was put to sleep by an intravenous tranquilizer, which was followed by poisons that stopped his breathing and then his heart. Fourteen years and two appeals after his conviction for 33 counts of murder, John Wayne Gacy is dead. All right. Bye-bye, Johnny. Bye-bye, Johnny. Look, if you can't hold Gacy responsible for killing, how can you hold us responsible for killing him? I just want to find a way to deal with sick people that isn't just about revenge. You're asking me to give up wanting justice. I can't do that. Mary, at some point you have to give up your principles for what works. We need to figure out what made Gacy a killer without just chalking it up to some boogeyman dark forces. If we can get to the truth of that, we could cure crime instead of just reacting to it. Look, I am from a Catholic family. Coming out sucked. My parents sent me to our priest. I remember telling him over and over that I didn't want to be gay, I just was. He had no good answer to why anyone would choose to be a hated minority, but he wouldn't let go of the idea that people are gay by choice. When I think about that, a lot of what you say almost makes sense. But? But then I think about my dog pissing on the rug. Okay. It happened yesterday. I said, bad dog. I know he's not really bad. I say it to teach him. If you want to call criminals diseased, fine. But isn't part of the cure to hold them responsible for their actions? I guess he was way too far along to be cured by a lesson. But the lesson is also for everyone else. Okay, we're affected by our environment. But when you call someone sick instead of evil, you're changing the environment. For everybody. You give people a way to avoid responsibility. But you're not Obviously, my dog didn't know any better when he peed on the floor. But if I just calmly say to him, Oh, you didn't know any better. He never will. And if you don't punish a criminal, he's going to stay a criminal and the rest of society gets a bad lesson. But it's dishonest. Doctor, at some point you have to give up your principles for what works. (laughs) Touche. But the status quo is not working. When did I say I like the status quo? The status quo isn't nearly tough enough. I wouldn't have given Gacy 14 years before his execution. Look at Singapore. People here were up in arms over that kid getting caned for graffiti. Maybe they go too far over there, but their streets are clean. Their murder rate is like 120th hours. Discipline works. We're not doing discipline. Yeah? You want to live in Singapore? I'm just saying, if you want to talk dog training, for punishment to be effective, it's got to come right after the bad behavior and it's got to be consistent. Sure, that's true in the formative years, but Gacy was... Gacy was a model prisoner the whole time he was in. You think he was cured? No. No. He just knew he couldn't get away with anything in prison, so he didn't try. That shows that if punishment is certain, people will behave. There are better ways to get there. You say people act according to their strongest incentive. Fine. Let's make sure their strongest incentive is to be good. You smacking mosquitoes instead of draining swamps. 
And it's all based on a lie. I don't think it's a lie. I think the more you tell people they're not responsible, the less responsible they'll be. The more you tell them they are responsible, the more responsible they'll be. Either way, you're part right and part wrong, but either way, the more you say it, the truer it gets. So you know what? I'm going to say the one that I want to be true. Hmm. You know who would have agreed with you? No. Casey's father. Come on. From the time Casey was a toddler, every time he messed up, he was beaten. With a belt, with a broomstick. He got lots of discipline. And how did that work out? That wasn't discipline, that was abuse. And what's the difference? Oh, Jesus. Should we get another round? <laughs> sure. Tommy, set us up. Ain't no angel gonna greet me. It's just you and I, my friend. You don't have to do this. People always say the same thing. You don't. Okay. This is the best I can do. God. I know she was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No. Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. I got here the same way the coin did. Adrian Rain is the author of The Anatomy of Violence. To the things we traditionally look at as causes of crime... You know, things like bad parents, bad home, bad neighborhood, discrimination, poverty... He wants us to add... A genetic and biological and brain basis. What evidence do we have of that so far? I did a brain imaging study, the very first one on murderers, which showed us that the very frontal region of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is just not working well. Why would poor functioning in the front of the brain cause a person to commit murder? It's the part of the brain that regulates our emotions. We all get angry at times. Right. But what stops us lashing out? We have a good functioning frontal cortex that tells us, let's hold off here. It's where the superego resides? Well, yeah, you could look at it in a Freudian sense. And if that guardian angel is asleep, then the devil can come out. Right. When our car's going out of control, we put on the brakes. In murderers, those brakes are worn. But doesn't that call into question our concepts of evil? I think when people say someone's evil, they're imagining that person has the same capacities they do and is just making evil choices. That's right. Well, I think it's 13th century thinking. <laughs> Saying somebody is evil doesn't explain how they got to be in that situation. Really, there's no such thing as evil. There are people in the world, and they're not all equal. And for reasons sometimes beyond the individual's control, that doesn't force them to become criminals, but it raises the odd poor frontal lobe functioning, low physiological arousal as a risk factor for antisocial behavior. Poor nutrition early on in life. Mm -hmm. A mother who smokes during pregnancy, her offspring are three times more likely to grow up to become violent criminal offenders. A mom who drinks during pregnancy, her kids are more likely to grow up to become criminals. Factors even before the child is born predispose some people to be the devils in life. 
And that's not even talking about genetics yet. There's 20,000 genes out there, and we know that 50% of the variation in crime can be chalked up to genetic influences. It's not trivial. We've identified violence genes. Not quite. We think there are combinations of genes Mm -hmm. that code for traits like stimulation-seeking, impulsivity, a lack of empathy, which raise the odds that somebody may become a violent criminal. Biological and social factors can't, at the moment, predict perfectly who's going to become a future criminal. Right. People will say not everyone with poor frontal lobe functioning is a murderer. Yeah. Of course, not everyone who smokes gets lung cancer. Same thing with violence. There are a lot of risk factors which, when they come together, can give rise to crime and violence. The exciting challenge that lies ahead of us is putting together the known social pieces of the jigsaw puzzle with the newly discovered biological pieces. It's only then that we will develop intervention and prevention programs to more effectively stop crime and violence. Yeah, I really think that complexity is not a good argument against determinism. Just because there are all these factors that we can't quite make sense of yet doesn't mean that they don't all exist and determine our behavior. I feel like if there was a supercomputer that could integrate all this information, we could perfectly predict what everyone is going to do. But we can't. Well, not yet. And I, I think one of the reasons why we can't is there are situational factors and chance factors. When I was an undergraduate, a graduate student said, why don't you become an academic? And you know what? I'd never thought of it. Hmm. I went back home that night, made applications to PhD programs. Otherwise, I would have become a school teacher because that's what I'd planned for myself. Hmm. Chance meetings. Our lives can turn on a dime. But that's part of your environment, chance meetings, right? Absolutely. But we can't predict chance meetings. For that reason, we'll never be able to perfectly predict crime. But can we do better? Absolutely. Dustin Pardini, brain scanned males, he divided them up into those with low amygdala volumes Mm -hmm. and compared to the other group with normal amygdala volumes, they were four to five times more likely to commit a violent criminal act in the next three years. Hmm. It's never going to be perfect prediction. Right. But if brain imaging and genetics can help us make more accurate predictions, shouldn't we be using it? How should we use it? Judges, probation officers, they make decisions every day on who to release early from prison. Oh, okay, yeah. And then there are also interventions aimed at treatment, right? Well, one study I just finished, we did a randomized control trial where we gave omega-3 to some children. Omega-3 is a long-chain fatty acid that's critical for brain structure and function. Six months after the treatment finished, the kids who had taken the omega-3, had a 42% reduction in antisocial behavior. Also, there's a characteristic in children called callous and emotional traits. Kids who are callous and unemotional are a little bit like adult psychopaths. They don't care about other people. Mm -hmm. And that characteristic dropped by 45% in the kids who took the omega-3 drink. Now, I want to be cautious here. One swallow does not a summer make. We need more studies. Right. However, so far, two randomized controlled trials have been done of omega-3 in prisoners. The first one was done in England, and it showed a 34% reduction in serious offending within the prison. 
the Ministry of Justice in the Netherlands heard about that finding and decided, this sounds fishy, let's see if we can replicate the finding. And actually they did, at about the same level. Now, Omega-3 is not a silver bullet that's going to overnight turn things around, but I think it's worth pursuing. Here's something else we can do to change the brain. Mindfulness training. This form of meditation has been found in randomized controlled trials to upregulate the amygdala. And better nutrition and meditation, what's so heinous about that? That's not exactly eugenics, is it? Right. That's not frontal lobectomies, you know, as it used to be. There has been misuse on biological research, but I don't want that to make us throw out the baby with the bathwater. Now, in your book, you imagine a future with interventions a little more controversial than meditation and omega-3 supplements. Yes. Supposing in the future, prediction gets better. So imagine 30 years' time, the government enacting the National Child Screening Program. What if every kid in school was screened to try and identify which kids have the social, genetic, and brain risk factors for crime and violence? By the way, I've got two 12-year-old boys, so okay. what if you come to me and say, one of my boys, little Johnny's rotten, he's got all the risk factors, and he's got a 65% chance of growing up to become a violent criminal offender. Not perfect prediction, but he's at real risk. That's the bad news. The good news we have for you, Dr. Rain, is we've developed new intervention and prevention programs that have a 70% chance of being successful. It'll mean we have to take your little Johnny away from you for two years into a residential treatment program. What do I do as a parent? Do I say, well, no, I don't want my little Johnny taken away from me. He hasn't done anything wrong so far. But then if we do that, he's got a 65% of not just ruining his life, but the lives of innocent victims and the lives of his family members. Yeah, it makes me think of the vaccination problem. Yeah, but on the other hand, what if I put him into the treatment program? It's not going to be perfectly successful. Could I risk stigmatizing him as a future violent offender? I'm sure you all understand the legalistic drawback to pre-crime methodology. Here we go again. We are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The commission of the crime itself is absolute metaphysics. The pre-cons see the future and they're never wrong. But it's not the future if you stop it. Isn't that a fundamental paradox? Yes, it is. Why'd you catch that? Because it was gonna fall. You're certain? Yeah. But it didn't fall. You caught it. The fact that you prevented it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. At what level are we willing to grasp the nettle, grasp the new body of knowledge, which is throwing up uncomfortable questions like maybe free will is not as free as we think? But if we accept that, what are we going to do with our anger when bad people hurt us? <laughs> if we call them sick instead of evil, then we're not justified in being angry at them. Yeah, some repeat violent offenders They've got a disorder, just like people with depression have a disorder or schizophrenia, uh -huh. and that means we have to treat them with more understanding. And I think that's something very uncomfortable for society to deal with, yeah. because our traditions have been lock them up and throw away the key. Right. They've done evil, so let them pay for it. But what if instead we say, for reasons beyond their control early on in life, bad biology, bad environments, and bad genes shape them to become these people that we call evil? 
they weren't fully responsible for those causes. And we may have better intervention and prevention programs to stop crime and violence in the future. Some of us would say, well, that's the way to go. But for every one person who thinks like that, there's another person who says there's something wrong with this. People need to pay for their sins. Or a hundred others. <laughs> We're still fighting an uphill battle getting these ideas across. I think we are. I mean, retribution reigns in the United States and, of course, in many other countries, too. And I can understand that perspective. I defended a man who raped and murdered a wonderful young woman. He had a terrible home background. He didn't have a father. He had a horrible mother, head injuries. I brain scanned him and showed that he really had poor frontal lobe functioning. And he was spared the death penalty. Now, if that was your sister who was raped and brutally murdered, you wouldn't care about what led the murderer to do that. You would want him hung high. Right. You really would. Yeah. And we have to respect that in society. We want an eye for an eye. It's visceral. It's a visceral gut reaction. And I believe we have evolved as a species to have that. Just think of the early hominid societies. If a psychopath came and stole our goods, ripped us off, well, what if we just let them get away with it? Well, we'd become extinct. Instead, we've banded together and thrown out of our group those individuals who break the rules. This gut feeling to punish offenders is not going to go away easily. Yeah, we're fighting millions of years of... Exactly, millions of years have brought that about. My fear is that it's going to take a long time to lose that and focus instead from a utilitarian perspective of how can we fix them. Rick Nevin is a senior economist with ICF International. In the 1990s, while poring over data for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development rule on lead paint hazard reduction, he found something interesting. In the U.S., gasoline lead emissions peaked in the early 1970s, fell dramatically through the early 80s, and I looked at how that curve related to violent crime data, and the fit was absolutely stunning. It fits like a hat on a head. Okay, you follow? Lead emissions go up. 23 years later, crime goes up. Lead emissions go down. 23 years later, crime goes down. And that time lag is consistent with what we know about the peak age of violent offending. And in different countries around the world, you saw exactly the same pattern. So what do you say to critics who say you've made a very compelling correlation case, but that doesn't definitively prove causation? Bradford Hill in 1965, in a famous study walk through what are the indicators that you need to demonstrate causation. One of them is time precedence. The cause has to precede the effect. And in every single area, the statistical best fit time lag is exactly what would make sense based on what we know about lead especially affecting children in the first year or two of life. Another key indicator of causation is consistency. People who haven't looked at any of the research in this like to have a silly chart where they show something like pirate attacks and global climate levels. You know, look, I have a correlation with five years, but they don't have the consistency of 40 or 50 years in nine different countries. What are the statistical odds of coming up with this coincidental correlation with exactly the same time lags within every country? And probably one of the most important is biological plausibility. 
we've known for a long time that IQ is dramatically affected by childhood lead exposure. And now we have MRI studies that clearly demonstrate that childhood lead exposure reduces gray matter in the brain and perhaps more importantly with respect to behavior, it reduces white matter, which is the connections between the neurons. Chemical and Engineering News recently commented that the known and documented impacts of lead exposure on early brain development are so numerous and deleterious that there's almost an excessive abundance of candidates for how lead exposure could affect behaviors and educational patterns in all of these ways. So I actually think the evidence for causation is overwhelming. Now, maybe you're a Freakonomics fan like me and heard this theory. The legalization of abortion in the 1970s was one of the primary reasons why crime fell in the 1990s because a whole generation of potentially unwanted children were never born. At the time, I found it very convincing, but... The Roe v. Wade decision happened at exactly the time that lead levels in gasoline peaked. Ah. But in Britain, they legalized abortion several years before they did in the United States, and they kept the lead in gasoline for a decade or two longer. And as our violent crime rate plummeted over the 1990s, the violent crime rate in Britain doubled. Wow. Canada, on the other hand, actually added restrictions on abortions not too long after the Roe v. Wade decision in the U.S., and their crime pattern fits exactly the U.S. pattern because their lead emissions pattern was exactly the same as really one market for North American vehicles. There are a lot of people who've looked at what can explain the 1990s crime decline. But the abortion theory and other studies on the 1990s crime decline don't offer any insight at all into the much more important question of what in the world caused the crime rate to rise inexorably from 1960 all the way through the early 1990s. Hmm. The lead exposure trends are the only criminology theory I'm aware of that explains both the long rise in the crime rate and the current decline that most countries, and they are now experiencing steep declines across Europe where they limited lead emissions some years after we did in the U.S., and they are as bewildered by their crime declines as we were in the 1990s when ours occurred. And it looks as though the murder rate in Mexico peaked in 2011, and they started reducing lead and gasoline, and they have data showing the decline in blood lead levels for children that began in the early 1990s. Unfortunately, Venezuela will be one of the last countries to see this benefit because they kept the lead and gasoline at extremely high levels well after most of the other nations in Latin America. It looks as though Venezuela will take over the title of highest murder rate country in the world this year. It's huh. fascinating. Look, there's a reason why more young black men are in prison. There's a reason why police are more cautious while approaching a black man. And the reason is overwhelmingly violent crime in this country is generated by young black men. Am I wrong? Yes, Bill. It's patently false that African Americans are responsible for even a simple majority of violent crime, much less an overwhelming one. It is true that black people commit crime disproportionate to their percentage of the population. I would chalk much of that up to institutional racism and a racist application of the law, but to the extent that doesn't cover it, Rick Nevin offers a further explanation. African Americans were way disproportionately affected by lead poisoning, first because they were much more likely to live in older housing, slum housing in the 1950s and 1960s, with severe lead paint hazards. 
and African-Americans were much more concentrated in urban areas where the air lead levels were much higher due to urban traffic congestion. In the mid to late 1970s, African-American children were eight times more likely than white children to have severely elevated blood leads. And the black juvenile murder arrest rate was close to that order of magnitude, higher than the white juvenile murder arrest rate 15 to 18 years later. But what happened over the 1990s is the black juvenile murder arrest rate fell by an absolutely astonishing 83%. And you rewind, we have the blood lead survey data to show that the percentage of black children with extremely high elevated blood leads fell by a similarly large percentage when we phased out lead and gasoline and began working harder to address remaining lead paint hazards. What about people who say it's a cultural problem and too many unwed parents? A lot of people believe, clearly, you just look, the areas that have high crime rates also have very high unwed birth rates, children living with no father in the house. Right. This is obviously the cause of the problem. But one key indicator of causation, I mentioned earlier, is time precedence. Mm-hmm. If you were thinking that family structure explained the crime trends, that might make sense if you saw a big increase in children living with single parents, and then... There'd have to be a lag. Yeah, 15 to 25 years later, if you saw the crime rate start to pick up, and then if you saw the same thing with the crime rate coming down, then that time relationship would make sense. That isn't what happened. The data clearly shows that the unwed birth rate, the divorce rate, percentage of children living with single parents, and youth arrest rates all started increasing at the same time, and they all started decreasing at the same time. I'm a big fan of David Plotz and the Slate Political Gap Fest, but I have to take issue with something he said on a recent show. New York City is as safe as it's been in a century, maybe. It's unbelievable how little violent crime there is now. And one of the things that caused this is that in the past 15 or 20 years, there's been a change in policing with the broken windows theory, James Q. Wilson's theories about really targeting low-level crime, low-level disorder, very aggressive policing of small things like turnstile jumping, and it ends up having a follow-on effect where violent crime drops enormously. This is an example of the risk of looking at a limited number of years, because if you look at just the 1990s, you might say, aha, the incarceration rate reached an extraordinarily high level, and then the crime rate started to decline. But both the crime rate and the incarceration rate were increasing relentlessly from 1960 through the early 1990s. And the steadily rising incarceration rate didn't seem to have any impact at all on the steadily rising crime rate. You're talking about a stunning five-fold increase in the violent crime rate and an equally stunning now more than 50% decline. And the police per capita just slices across that huge curve like a jagged but more or less straight line. Uh And the news media has just completely ignored the 50 or 60 percent decline over the last 10 or so years and still dropping like a rock in the incarceration rate for males ages 18 to 19. You're seeing a smaller but still very large decline for people in their 20s and a smaller decline for people in their 30s. And since the early 1990s, the incarceration rate for people over the age of 40 or 50 has been increasing because you're actually reaching back across birth years when lead exposure levels were still rising. 
Well, I find this all very persuasive. So what does this say to us about our notions of evil, if it can be caused by just a chemical? It really should make people reflect about the notion of an evil person as opposed to an evil act. Yeah. You certainly have to incarcerate people who are dangerous to others. It really doesn't matter if they're dangerous because of childhood blood exposure or because they had horrifically abusive parents who locked them in a closet. You have to protect law-abiding people. But one area where I do think this has some immediate implications is the death penalty. In the United States, we're one of the last countries and not a group of countries that you really want to be with on any subject. <laughs> yeah, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, North Korea. And the Supreme Court in recent decisions, they have limited the death penalty, saying first that you cannot execute the mentally retarded because they obviously have diminished capacities right. that diminish their culpability. And they said you cannot execute juveniles, in part pointing to MRI research on brain growth and how the white matter builds and increases connections and the self-control associated with those connections. The MRI research cited in those studies have a striking direct parallel with the MRI studies showing exactly where and how lead exposure causes neurodevelopmental damage. And when you put that together with the murder rate now going on 114 years, tracking lead exposure trends, in hindsight, we'll realize that there was pretty obvious evidence of diminished capacities being associated with even the most horrific murders for as long as we have data for. And some of those people need to be incarcerated, but the logic behind executing them because they are especially culpable for their crimes just doesn't hold up. Because no one's claiming rehabilitation as a justification for punishment anymore, right? They're not, but I wish they would think about the research on lead. They might have a lot more success with it. What would be the approach? Well, after the teenage years, you build up this white matter, a substance called myelin that deposits on the connections between neurons, and your brain is better and better wired as you grow older. And that fits what we've always known about offending rates by age. Prison guards will talk about criminals who age out of that behavior. Hmm. Well, there are MRI studies that show that people who focus mental effort in a particular area, say language skills, you build white matter at a faster pace in the areas where you are focused. It makes the brain sound like a muscle. Uh -huh. And if the white matter growth is associated with decline in offending rates, then the program that more aggressively pushed prisoners towards educational challenges could actually help to reduce the recidivism rate. It might be that building up the white matter in your brain in general, whether you're studying languages or history or anything else, helps with your behavior control. This is a very speculative hypothesis, but when I see what we actually do with people in prison, where they sit in isolation, the worse their behavior is, the more isolated they are, the less stimulation they have, including punishing them by revoking their library privileges. Oh, wow. And I yeah, just feel like, you know, this... counterproductive. This could be the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. Yeah. I believe there are some studies showing reduction in recidivism from prison education programs. I think the presumption often is that this reduces recidivism because this positions you better to have a productive life, it's to get a job. Thing, yeah. But I think there might be something more than that. 
Right. The good news is that we've continued to make tremendous progress. We have 20 years of declining blood lead levels that are in the bank for us as a society. Right. I am absolutely certain our prisons are going to empty out over the next two or three decades. Interesting. Well, I hope you're right. (laughs) (laughs) So do I. I'm pretty persuaded. We've only scratched the surface of all the data Rick has collected over the years, so if you'd like to see more, head on over to ricknevin.com. You probably heard the story. My kind committed the high crime of inciting the eating of fruit, and so were made to crawl on our bellies for all time. People like to say we're just as afraid of you as you are of us. Think so? Let me ask you this. Do you have poison venom syringes built into your teeth? Tell yourself I'm just as afraid as I bite your ass. Now you're not walking either. The father of all humans ratted out the father of all snakes. That's how we see you rats. And you know what snakes do to rats. So no, we're not afraid of you. Snakes are nothing but spine. Did you ever wonder why the snake cared whether Eve ate the apple? It was all a setup. God didn't want you in paradise. Who needs God in paradise? Happy people don't need God. Miserable people need God. God made the garden, and God made the apple, and God made the snake. You think he didn't know how it was all going to turn out? You think he was really angry? He was just Hollywooden for you. God was bored with your happy asses. He made this beautiful aquarium, and after a while, he got tired of just watching and had to tap on the glass. So don't be mad at us. And don't be mad at yourselves. Everything is going the way it's supposed to. Which is bad. You know how smart people say, what kind of God would allow all this suffering? And then dumb people say, everything happens for a reason. Well, the dumb people are right. But the reason is, God likes it when things are fucked up. That's it. He likes it. If you just accept that simple truth, the universe becomes a lot less mysterious. Sometimes it's fun to be evil. I'm generally pro-good, anti-evil. But sometimes it's fun to be evil just in little ways. Like my mom, you know, oh mother, <laughs> I told you I'd call you right back, but I didn't. <laughs> You've just been lied to by your demon seed. 
Just around the neighborhood. Oh, Subway sandwich shop. <laughs> I bet you allocated one straw per customer. But guess who took five? <laughs> you just had your inventory reeked upon by the dark one. <sighs> oh, little old man on SoCo. I asked you for directions, and halfway through you giving them, I decided to go back to the motel and take a nap, but I acted like I was still listening. Oh, you just had your time wasted by the beast. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal, you. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal, you. You know you've done me wrong. Let's say you're walking down the street on a college town, these drunken frat guy yahoos who ride by in a car and swear at you and yell at the window. This happens to women all the time. They even do it to some old geezer like me. <laughs> Next up is Bill Miller, author of many great books, including Eye for an Eye. And I am consumed with murderous fury. I mean, I want to kill those guys and gouge their eyes out, <laughs> rip their vocal cords out, stamp on them, kick their heads in. And that feeling holds on to me well into that evening. And sometimes even days later, it'll come back and say, now with an iPhone, I'll get their license. I'll show up right. and I'll just start whacking one after another. <laughs> but in the moment, do you... Uh... Oh, I'm just consumed with fury. I guess that's why I've made writing about revenge my entire scholarly life. <laughs> I get my rocks off writing about it. I felt, I felt like in your introduction you were sort of anticipating all the lefty academics. Oh, yeah, uh, all the weenies was just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you already had to say, like, I'm not saying this is what we should have, but I felt like you really kind of like it. Well, cultures of revenge have their rules when it's nation states saying they're taking revenge or Muslims versus Christian or Muslim versus Jew and so on and so forth, where the other side doesn't really recognize the humanity of the other side and it's just obliterate right. them where there's no rules of proportionality. Mm -hmm. That's not, that, that, my interest is in actual cultures where everybody's on the same page, signs onto the same rule and their legal system demands in some circumstances that they take revenge. We all think that people who live in those cultures are kind of nobler than we are. Yeah. I mean, they make stories that are worth making into movies. Exactly. And our lives, our lives, little weenie lefty <laughs> lives. Hey, I recycled the day. Oh, geez, I'm a hero. That's something you talk about, that the audience for revenge matters. Yeah, revenge is just not what you feel about it, but how other people feel about whether you had a right to take it. So you want it to play well before others. It's not just fictional revenge is where we care about the audience. Within a culture, revenge plays by rules of balance, and you are locked into taking what the custom allows, which might not be enough to satisfy your anger. But people will take you out if you're taking revenge for things that they don't think you have a right to take revenge for, or if you're taking excessive revenge. Othello wants to keep raising up Cassio and Iago from the dead so he can kill them again and again and <laughs> yeah. again. But then we know from the James Bond movies that if you want to take a slow, tantalizing killing of somebody to make them squirm, that that always lets James escape. Right? Well, the movies, the bad guy always leaves the room. So it's, yeah, it's, well, it's, they, it's... the bad guys are so dumb in those things. But <laughs> the difference between a bad guy and a good guy is a good guy is practical and whacks the bad guy. And the bad guy wants to make an artful revenge. And as a result, he botches it. 
in reality, you just want to be practical about it. In fact, a lot of revenge just happened because, oh, hey, the cousin of that guy who raped my sister just rode by my farm. He'll do. <laughs> <laughs> but there are also elements of a satisfying revenge in the Avengee, right? Yeah, sure. Cousin, you kill him and he's not even going to know. Yeah, does the guy who's getting hit need to know... God, I wish I hadn't raped his sister. But what is the poor cousin of the guy? I wish I didn't have a cousin who goes around raping. What satisfaction is there in that? A lot of revenge cultures, especially once rifles become available, in the Albanian blood feud, if you pick somebody off like a mile and a half away using a scope and a bullet hits this guy in the head and he doesn't know what hit him, everybody pats you on the back and says, nice shot, man, you're avenged. That seems less than ideal. Yeah, we in our weenie criminal law thinking want the person to understand why they're being punished. But a lot of times, what the hell? Because you're playing before an audience, taking a guy out who's 1,700 yards away between the eyes, hey, that's pretty good shooting, Miller, you know, pretty good. (laughs) And so what if it's the guy who actually raped your sister or his cousin? In either case, when the bullet hits his skull, he isn't going to have consciousness of anything. Right. But is preferring the alternative really weenie liberal? I think it satisfies this very conservative bloodlust to have the guy know, you know, I'm an ego until you killed my father. He has to tell him first. Yeah, but you know, there's all kinds of, I always thought the Quakers refusing to ever hit back is a form of revenge too. It means nothing you can do, man, will ever motivate me to hit you back. And there's a sign of not love of your fellow human, but of utter contempt for him. <laughs> In the 17th century, these town thugs would go around beating the crap out of Quakers. Yeah. And the Quaker would take one shot after another and just look at them. And eventually, it became clear to the guy beating the crap out of the Quaker, if he had any brains, that he just got out-muscled and out-toughed. You said that in the book. That's a great line. Uh, forgiveness is a move. Yeah, forgiveness is just a move in the game. I love that. I mean, it's a gesture of utter contempt. I forgive you. <laughs> Nothing you do to me matters. You don't see any like positive uh, healing form of forgiveness. It's all actually letting go of your grudges that are eating you alive. Forgiveness is a good thing in many situations. If it brings peace, that's fine. But if forgiving your enemy drives them crazy, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll feel better if you can shake off all that hate. And don't forget to forgive and forget. And don't let the sun go down on your grievance. But if you really forget, then you're just asking to be victimized again and again and again. We all know that if we forgive someone, they're on parole. Right. Okay, I forgive you. But if the person <laughs> then does it again, yeah. only a fool will treat that as if it were the first offense. Now, let me ask you this, uh, because one of the weenie lefty things I'm proposing this episode is that we prefer to call people evil, but I feel like every serial killer is just a sick, broken person. But if they're sick, doesn't that just ruin the revenge? Or let's say you find one of these old Nazi concentration camp guards who killed like 400 people and tortured others. And then the person you find is this 91-year-old little crippled man, you know, and he looks like he's a grandpa. And, of course, it takes all the satisfaction out of it to whack that guy, but you got to whack him. (laughs) 
Just, just I mean, the, you gotta whack him. Yeah. You owe it to the people he killed and tortured. You gotta whack yeah, him, even though it's a shock horse. It, it shows you just how inadequate the recompense is. You want to get the guy in the recognizable body and form he visited right. his That's mayhem on everybody. That's the movie version. It never happens the other way around. But it shows you that it's ugly business at some points. But it's not like being lawless. It's doing justice. Okay, but you asked about the insane. With the truly insane, there can be no feeling of satisfaction in the revenge, but you certainly want to make sure they don't harm anybody ever again. But the man on the street is saying Jeffrey Dahmer is a horrible monster, and we're not locking him up just for practical reasons. We're punishing him for the horrible choices he made. You know, let's say you trip over your kid's doll on the stairs. You kick the doll. <laughs> yeah. When we say, God damn it, we're sending that thing to hell. <laughs> Even inanimate objects that bump us or that we hit our head in, our first reaction is to attribute intention to them. Yeah. Well, if we hold a door sill and the threshold and the doll on the landing accountable, I don't know, why not hold a crazy human being accountable? But then you say revenge leads to emptiness. One of the best revenge movies ever made is The Princess Bride. Yeah. It just shows you that revenge is so powerful that it can make you get tears in your eyes in a just a shtick comedy. <laughs> Ever since yeah. Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence is shattered. Why'd you say that name? You promised me that you would never say that name. What? And of course it works well in tragedy and heroic genres and love stories, everything. Revenge just is absolutely promiscuous across all literary genres. But I actually think it belongs more in the comic world than anywhere else because of course it's a nice ending, right? Right. If you heal him, he will stop Humperdinck's wedding. Shut I make him better, Humperdinck suffers. Humiliations galore. <laughs> that is a noble cause. So anyway, when poor Inigo Montoya actually kills the guy who killed his dad, he's just emptied out. What does he say? I've been in the vengeance business so long. What am I going to do? Right. And can you imagine Hamlin existing, actually having fulfilled the duty to avenge his father? They wrote the greatest thing ever written about the anguish it is to have this burden put on me. And that's who I am. I am that burden. Right. And now that it's gone, how could I live post? It's like the kid who hit his high point as a high school jock and was the king of the prom. And then the rest of his life, all he can do is tell stories about his high school glory and everybody treats him as pathetic. He should have got drunk the night of the prom and wiped out in a car accident. And then he'd go down as a great hero and his life would be looked on as a great loss. You know, so much potential and stuff like that. <laughs> okay, so in your book, you make a really interesting point. You say that who deserves revenge is a function of an arbitrary decision as to when to start the camera rolling or of what state of affairs to declare the equilibrium position. Yeah, in actual historical blood feuds, it's never clear what the thing that starts it off is. What will happen is as the feud continues, the start point will always be Muddled. recast. Yeah, it'll be reinterpreted to give themselves more right to continue what they're doing. The backstory is always up for negotiation. 
one of my movies that I really like, Unforgiven. William Money is constantly reminding us that if you started the camera rolling way back when he was blowing up trains with women and children, you would have a very different idea of who the hero of the story was than the one that stars Clint Eastwood starting when he does as a broken down farmer. We could start this story at a different time and you would all be in favor of Gene Hackman. (laughs) Right. We can twist your loyalties real easy. But does that suggest a problem with revenge as an approach to dealing with wrongs? If the first offense can be forgotten or muddled, then you're just going to be in an endless loop. You know what? You just try and wait out a problem until it gets outmoded and a new one arises. I mean, I don't know. Life's pretty... (laughs) Don't get me more depressed than I already am about the world's possibilities. So that's it. Just wait it out. I've come to the mountaintop. Wait it out, global warming. We'll all be underwater (laughs) anyway. Don't expect me to be the same as I've been. Just look at the hole you've got me in. I'm getting even with you. Well... These new ridiculous ideas have come at last, and orders are orders. Though I may say to you in confidence, I do not approve. An eye for an eye, I say. If someone hits you, you hit back, do you not? Why then should not the state, very severely hit by you brutal hooligans, not hit back also? The new view is to say no. The new view is that we turn the bad into good. All of which seems to me to be grossly unjust, eh? The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Tis twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It's enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. In the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I'm on the phone with Dr. Luskin. He's the director of the Stanford Forgiveness Project and the author of Forgive for Good. Do people ever try to take advantage of the fact that you're a forgiveness master, you know, expecting that you will have to forgive them, whatever they do to you? Every now and then, if I'm late to a class or make a mistake, people chirp up, well, we'll forgive you. <laughs> and I've had friends, if I'm mad at them, they'll say, well, aren't you the forgiveness guy? You're not supposed <laughs> to do this. You said something I really liked. Life happens and we object when it doesn't go the way we wanted. And that rejection of our own lives causes turmoil, and then forgiveness is the resolution of that turmoil. Yeah, that's exactly what I would say. I find that a very healthy way to think, but when we or a loved one is subjected to violence, how can we not object? I mean, isn't it even right that we object when we're treated with cruelty? Nobody's saying it's not going to hurt. 
and nobody's saying it's not going to disrupt your whole life. That's different than objecting to it. We tend to deify our objections, and I don't believe we focus enough on our acceptance and our humility and learning to live within the rules of a game we didn't create. But I mean, isn't it just a very human and natural response to be angry when someone hurts you? If someone close to you was murdered, would you be able to look at that with the equanimity that you're prescribing to us? I hope, I mean, truly, I hope that if something like that happened to me, I would have the full range of human responses of which anger is a part. I also hope that I wouldn't be limited by that. The human being is more than just something that just gets angry. It is also something that suffers, which is a much gentler and vulnerable response. Mm -hmm. I mean, every offense from slight to horrendous has some period of time where anger makes some sense. If somebody has actually harmed you for real, being angry for a while is the most sensible thing because your nervous system needs to be in red alert so it can take care of things if needed. Right. But three months later, that red alert is just going to wear you out and it's going to destroy your ability to think. There's always a time that comes when being angry and upset and kind of self-absorbed by that stops being helpful either to you or anybody else. And that's when grief has run its course and it's time to let it go. I mean, that's just part of, you know, to everything there is a season. There is a season for being upset and there's a season for letting it go and resolving it. And they're both equally valid. It's not either or. Right. Forgiveness is important, but it doesn't substitute for grieving. You know, those stages of grieving include anger. So what's the process of moving from the initial reaction to a more uh, healthy one? Well, what makes it so hard is feeling the pain is a significant part of that process. Being willing to be scared, small, defeated, angry, to feel those and to share them. And after a while, they pass because the brain reintegrates and we enter into a new normal where there's still goodness and sunshine and love and opportunities, and the world hasn't ended. Right. So when anger turns to hate and a focus on the perpetrator, you think that's almost a way of avoiding the pain? It can be. But remember, it's an innate quality. I mean, we are designed to have retribution when needed. Well, that's interesting. So you feel like there's possibly a healthy way to pursue retribution? Sometimes you have to pursue retribution. But retribution doesn't have to be physical violence. Retribution can be somebody beats you and you march right over to the police station and you have the courage to press charges and stick it through. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not talking about being passive all the time or just letting the world do what it does. There are certain times where responding in kind are necessary. But they're so much rarer than the amount of anger in the world would suggest. But for our stories, we still gravitate towards this other way of resolving things. Not the guy going to the police station, but if somebody punches you, you punch him right back. And that's more fun to watch as an audience. Do you still enjoy those stories or are you watching and saying, oh, that's not the best way they could be handling it? Both. All of these stories and myths are helpful But part of my work is to help create more stories of forgiveness and compassion and generosity 
so that they then compete with the other stories for space in people's heads and hearts. Uh-huh. Can you still enjoy just an old-fashioned revenge yarn, or is of it? Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're totally fun. You don't stop being a human being just because you practice a little more forgiveness. <laughs> Right, but I just think you might just move to a higher plane where you don't even want to yeah. experience that vicariously. You don't want to be that rigid. Yeah. But the way I put forgiveness is people and cultures are poorer when forgiveness isn't on the menu of choices. So you're not saying revenge has to be off the table. You're just saying it shouldn't be the only choice. Well, how could you take something off the table that's hardwired into the person? But forgiveness and compassion should be as active in the social discourse as any of the harsher ones. There are two lines from The Princess Bride that I love. The one that everyone is very familiar with. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. That's the popular one. But five, six years ago, I heard another line. I went up to my hotel room. My wife had the movie on. And the 58-year-old Mandy's watching the 30-some-year-old Mandy say a line that I didn't really hear as that young man. You know, I have been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. And I love that line for all of us because revenge is completely worthless and pointless. And the purpose of existence is to embrace our fellow human being and turn our darkness into light. So that's the line I love from the movie. You hurt me so bad. You were the best friend I ever had. Now I'm crawling in my shoes. That's the show. We just finished episode 10 of 20. Thank you so much for being along. Please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or get on our mailing list so you'll find out about the next episode in case you've forgotten the show exists by then. Check out myclonicjerk.com to find out more about everyone you heard, including me. Thanks to Dirf Bachterf, Adrian Rain, Rick Nevin, Bill Miller, and Fred Luskin. The cop in the bar scene was played by Wesley Middleton. The snake was played by Brandon Dre. Lee Rosevere composed the score for that piece. Candace Hammer gave us the Shakespeare, and Neil Wright composed the score for that. Invaluable production assistance was provided by the amazing Brian Lotz. Thanks to Ellis Greer and Pam Cash and Jennifer Bosnos of the Call of the Wild School for Dogs for their assistance behind the scenes. And thanks to Julia Nippen, who won this episode's song suggestion contest with A Hard Rain by Bob Dylan. Follow MJ Podcast on Facebook or Twitter to find out about the next one. And a happy 80th birthday to my old man. Thank you for listening. Next episode, The Long View. Sounds vague, I know, but it'll be cool. Happy Valentine's Day. Our next prisoner is Wallace Redding. Mr. Redding, you've served 40 years of a life sentence. That's right, sir. Do you feel you've been rehabilitated? I don't believe I know the meaning of that word. 
Is the man who walked into this prison 40 years ago the same man you see before you? Absolutely not. Am I a saint? No, just a man. A man who's paid his debt to society. But no matter what your decision is today, I'll accept it. For I know that in the eyes of the Lord, I am a free man. Free from sin, I humbly await your answer. No! Hell no! You ain't a man! You're the Texas man-gobbler. Like, we'd be insane if we let you out. Yeah, you are never getting out of here. If there were no cameras in this room, I would kill you myself, you sick son of a bitch. The answer is no. An emphatic no. I don't expect you to come up with an answer right now. <laughs> but for any of you folks who are on the fence, I've taken a hard look at my life. No one is on the fence. You just ate a guy in prison last week, a new guy. You ate a whole guy, man. All that was left was just empty clothes in his hair. That's like a magic trick. This is a decision of whether or not you get the chair, and you absolutely do. I know you have a lot to discuss. The truth gets hazy inside the pen. Did I eat those people? Yes, I did. Did I enjoy it immensely? Would I do it again? Point me towards a homeless shelter. So whether you set me free or not, either way, I'm going to eat another man. Now, I can't make your decision for you. You don't need to. It's been made. You're never getting out. Do you honestly feel no remorse for what you've done? Of course I do. Not because I'm in here, but for what I was. A young, stupid kid. I want to find that kid. Try to talk some sense into him. Grab him by the shoulders and shake him. Grab him by the neck. Bite him. <laughs> Take a little nibble out of his arm and nibble on it like corn on the cob. Nom, 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 nom. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying you want to eat your younger self? Does that make me rehabilitated? Yes, it does. No, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. Well, before you answer, let me just say one thing. We already answered. No, dude. Now, whether I walk out of this prison a free man or not. Not, not. You're not walking out of here. Yeah, at this point, you should only be thinking about what you want for your last meal. A man. Sorry? For my last meal, one man, please. No. Two boys? No. 